0: Welcome, everyone, to Lost Ladies of Lit, the podcast dedicated to dusting off forgotten women writers. I'm Amy Helms.
1: And I'm Kim Askew. So the lost lady we're discussing today wrote about the beauty of cabbages. Okay, I hate to break it to you, Kim, but you're not really selling it. (laughs) You're right. Okay, I can see that. That wouldn't really be selling it. What if we were to tell you that this book which extols the virtues of literally your garden variety produce, was the top-selling novel of 1924, selling hundreds of thousands of copies the year it was published. How do you like them apples? Or should I say, cabbages? And what
0: if we were to tell you that it also won the Pulitzer Prize the following year? Pretty good deal, right? Mm -hmm. But we are a little embarrassed to say we hadn't read this book until quite recently, and we're guessing many people today haven't. This episode, we hope, will rectify that, at least for those of you who are listening, because how good is Edna Ferber's book? So
1: good. That's right. <laughs> and Amy's baby talk will eventually make sense to you in this episode, I promise. There's a reason to this. Um, actually, Ferber's novel, So Big, which she herself categorized as being a story about the triumph of failure, was so wildly popular in its day that it was adapted three times for a film the second of which in 1932 starred Barbara Stanwyck and featured a young Betty Davis in one of her earliest roles.
0: And I'm so excited that our guest today, who is an expert in films from this era, is going to be able to offer us an interesting perspective on Edna
1: Ferber and this book through that Hollywood lens. I can't wait to introduce her. So let's raid the stacks and get started. Okay. I am so excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Caroline Frick. She's an associate professor in the Department of Radio Television Film at University of Texas, Austin, and the founder and executive director of the Texas Archive of the Moving Image. She's worked in film preservation at Warner Brothers, the Library of Congress, and the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and she also programmed films for the American Movie Classics, that's AMC, channel. How cool is that? Caroline's book, Saving Cinema, was published in 2011 by Oxford University Press. Those things are all impressive, but the real reason I am so excited she's here is because she used to be my roommate once upon a time, many moons ago in San Francisco, when we were practically babies. She taught me a lot about movies, especially pre-code movies, which we'll be discussing later on in the show. And I think one of my first trips to LA was to visit her after she moved here. And do you remember, Caroline, you took me to the Ivy for dinner. I think you might have been working at Warner Brothers at the time and probably were on a bit of a tight budget, but I immediately felt like I was an LA story. That's just the kind of classy person Caroline is. We've lost touch over the last few years, but I'm loving that we are reconnected now, especially to do this podcast. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for such a nice introduction. This
2: is a, a great opportunity to talk and actually learn a little bit more about A topic that I kind of have been peripherally around, but didn't know that much about, which is Edna Ferber. Like, I thought this was such a great opportunity to dig down a little bit, to learn a little bit more about her. I know the movies, but I didn't know that much about her. So I really appreciate this invitation.
0: Yeah, sure. And so, Actually, Kim and I were really new to Edna Ferber heading into this episode. We had never read anything by her, but it does seem like she was one of those writers that Hollywood really took a liking to straight away for decades, in fact. So can you tell us anything about that?
2: Well, sure. I mean, what's interesting, and I've thought a lot about this, is there's lots of reasons why Edna Ferber would have been a really solid choice for the Hollywood studios at this particular time, right? If you look at when they started adapting her work was in the 1920s, 1930s. She's a really big deal. She's publishing. She's very popular. Uh, she is The author of really sprawling, I kept coming to the word sprawling, like sprawling dramas, right, that take place over decades. And so there are many reasons why the industry at this point in time would have logically gone to her. The fact that she wins a Pulitzer Prize for this particular novel is going to be a real attraction. What's fascinating also, though, to me was how many times these films were remade. Well, the adaptations were remade over and over again, whether it's Showboat, whether it's Cimarron whether it is uh, So Big with three adaptations, right? So she was a really popular author for them. And I think there are reasons why, and Well, we can get into this later, why I think So Big came out at this particular moment for this particular studio and with these particular stars. I think there's a lot that kind of comes together here.
1: Wow, okay, I'm excited. So Amy, what else do we know about Edna Ferber's life? Okay, so
0: basically, by the time of her death in 1968, she was considered one of the most successful women writers of her time. She had a proverbial seat at the Algonquin Roundtable. She'd won the Pulitzer, as Caroline said. But let's go back in time. She was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan in 1885, She was from a Jewish family. Her dad was a Hungarian-born shopkeeper, and her mom was of German descent. Her father lost his eyesight, and he experienced a lot of business failures, which prompted the family to move a lot. So they lived for a time in the Chicago area, which is actually where So Big is set. And then they eventually settled in Wisconsin. But Edna and her family experienced a lot of anti-Semitic bigotry. So people mocked her Yiddish accent. Um, It really helped her to understand the immigrant experience and what it felt like to be persecuted, which is a theme that she returns to a lot in her writing. But she also features strong female characters in a lot of her work.
1: Right, which we love, of course. So Edna initially wanted to study acting, but she ended up switching gears and dropping out of college so that she could help her struggling family. And based on the strength of articles she'd written for her high school paper, she landed a reporting gig at the local paper, the Appleton Daily Crescent, and worked her way up from there to reporting gigs for the Milwaukee Journal and the United Press Association. By the time she was 35, she covered the 1920 Democratic and Republican National Conventions, but it was as early as 1911 and 1912 that she started publishing some of her fiction, mostly short stories, including a collection of stories called Buttered Side Down, And then a few novels, the first of which was called Dawn O'Hara, The Girl Who Laughed. This was about a young woman newspaper reporter. So she's drawing from life here.
0: Yeah. And like a lot of other writers who started off as journalists, her writing style at this time was fairly pithy and to the point, you know, fairly journalistic. And it's safe to say she really didn't know the extent of her talent yet. So when she wrote So Big, which came out in 1924... She had initially told her publisher, Doubleday, you probably aren't going to want to publish this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she later claimed that, quote, not only did I not plan to write a bestseller when I wrote so big, but I thought when I had finished it that I had written the world's worst seller. I thought I had written a complete non-seller. I didn't think anyone would ever read it. So she figured nobody would be interested in a middle-aged woman who sells cabbages. But it was just one of those stories she had been carrying around in her head and she just needed to get it out, I guess.
0: And since we're on the topic of So Big, maybe we should go ahead and familiarize our listeners with the basic plot.
1: Sure. The heroine of the novel is Selena Peak. She's a young Midwestern woman who, thanks to her father's reputation as a gambler, is both accustomed to the finer things in life and also can easily make do with very little depending on which way the wind's blowing. So at the start of the book, she bemoans the fact she has to eat mutton and cabbage for dinner one night.
0: Oh, girl, just you wait. You're going to be overloaded with vegetables soon. (laughs) So early on in the book, Selena's dad shares a bit of wisdom with her about life, and it's something she winds up carrying with her and reflects back on throughout the course of the book. He says, I want you to realize that this whole thing is just a grand adventure, a fine show. The trick is to play in it and look at it at the same time. The more kinds of people you see and the more things you do and the more things that happen to you, the richer you are, even if they're not pleasant things. That's living. Remember, no matter what happens, good or bad, it's just so much, just so much velvet.
1: I love that quote just so much velvet. I thought this line was really
2: interesting and it gets used in the film as well, right? They use it. What do you think it means so much
1: velvet? I took it as luxurious, rich, royal almost.
0: You think of nobility being shrouded in velvet. The character over the course of time, she has a nobility, an unexpected nobility. And by the end of the book, it's going to make a lot more sense.
1: Yeah, because there are a lot of people with varying degrees of money and who is really a noble person by the end of the book. Anyway, he follows that great quote with another nugget of wisdom when he tells her there are only two kinds of people in the world that really count. One kind's wheat and the other kind's emeralds. That becomes prophetic for Selena when her father dies unexpectedly, the newly orphaned Selena must leave Chicago and try to eke out a living working as a rural school teacher in the Dutch immigrant farming community of High Prairie. It was loosely based on the present day suburb of South Holland, Illinois. On the wagon ride that brings her to this rural area, Selena, who's trying to make the best of the situation, optimistically describes the endless rows of cabbages as beautiful, a comment that sets her host family, the pools, roaring with laughter. It's a big joke for them after she says that.
0: Yeah, and actually, so Caroline, what I'm going to do is I have snippets of the film recorded. So let me cue up the cabbages quote. Cabbages are beautiful. <laughs> well, they are. They are beautiful. They're like jade and burgundy.
2: The actor that plays Mr. Poole is Alan Hale Jr. And a lot of the listeners might know his son because he was the skipper in Gilligan's Island. And so when you hear him laugh, he's very familiar. And he looks very familiar to those who were fans of Gilligan's Island. You might not know his father. His father was a very famous actor at this particular moment in time. But when he popped up in this film, I burst out laughing because I thought, oh, here we go. It's going to be a classic Alan Hale laugh.
0: Okay. So basically, as we can tell by his laughter, these pragmatic Dutch country folk think that Selena is crazy to take such a romanticized view of their backbreaking lives in the fields. But Ferber writes that for a woman like Selena, who can find beauty in cabbages, life has no weapons against a woman like that. I love that quote.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So the eldest son in the Poole family Rolf, he is the only one who doesn't laugh at Selena's romanticism. He's kind of a sensitive, artistic soul. And although he's quite a bit younger than Selena, he's 12 and she's 19. They form a very special bond. And am I the only one who was maybe a little initially weirded out at this part of the book because I thought they were going to find romance and he was so young?
1: <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> Caroline, what did you think? It was real weird.
2: And then I was like, you know that the movie is going to just mimic it. And then it was even weirder in the film. At first I was like, this is odd. And then I thought, no, they're finding each other's souls. This is like a a beautiful friendship.
0: I'm so used to reading books, especially books from this era. And you're like, oh, I know exactly where they're going with this. She's going to fall in love with Rolf And what's great about Ferber's book is you can't predict it. You don't know where stuff is going in this book at all. So needless to say, false alarm. There was no uh, inappropriate romance with a 12-year-old. So no worries about that.
1: Right. And Selena is obviously a very idealistic woman with big dreams, but life in High Prairie is a really harsh reckoning for her. When she discovers farmers use actual dried blood to fertilize the fields, it couldn't be more symbolic. Life on the farm is tough.
0: Yeah, and the hardship of farm life combined with the immigrant characters in this book, their command of the English language is very halting, the way Ferber describes it. It reminded me a lot of Willa Cather's My Antonia.
1: Yeah, and in the same way, I think you could say that Ferber's novel is a real tribute to immigrants. She emphasizes the fact that it's these simple, hardworking people who are literally feeding the nation and keeping all the fancy pants, privileged people in the cities alive.
0: Caroline, did you have any favorite passages that would sort of help give our listeners a taste of Ferber's writing style?
2: You know, when we were talking about kind of this celebrating the immigrants and celebrating the rural people at this point in time, I think one of the things that strikes me in some ways she's really mourning the 19th century's past into the 20th. It's a very much i think an indictment about modernity and kind of 20th century's rapid pace and kind of modernism and one of the things i loved reading about which is evocative and it, it's interesting that it it relates very much to the fact that she ironically was adapted so many times in cinema but she talks a lot you know as a young girl her father took her to the theater. And this is an ongoing thing. She obviously, once she's in the middle of nowhere, she's not going to see theater. She's not going to see burlesque. She's not going to see any of these kinds of shows. And so it says, strangely enough, considering the lack of what the world calls romance and adventure in her life, she did not like the motion pictures. All the difference in the world, she would say, between the movies and the thrill I get out of a play at the theater. My, yes like fooling with paper dolls when you could be playing with a real live baby. And I thought, I am so going to use this in my classes because the idea that she's like, movies are like paper dolls when you could have a real live baby. And I think there's some of this kind of, again, mourning of a more agrarian past
1: when it kind of collides with the urban modernity of the 20th century. So- Speaking of film, the three of us actually watched the 1932 film So Big. We all watched it separately. And Caroline, as I had mentioned, you're an expert in pre-code Hollywood. So let's weigh in on what we thought of the film up to this point in the story with Selena ending up living with the pools in High Prairie.
2: Well, I just want to say how brilliant it is that you're like, we actually watched this movie, which I think sums up perhaps the sacrifice that the three of us had in sitting through <laughs> yes, this movie, yes. I think. I'll defer to Amy here, but I was cracking up the way you just said that, because it was like, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. I'm not going to lie.
0: I would liken it to when you have to go see a cousin's son's high school play. <laughs> and yeah. you're like, oh, I would love to go. Yeah. And then you sit there and you're like, okay, yeah, yep. It's and exact- then you have to
1: say something nice <laughs> at the end. <laughs>
0: But first of all, Caroline, I'm not even really familiar with the term pre-code Hollywood, by the way. So can you fill me in on what exactly that even means?
1: Sure, sure. Pre-code
2: is a designation that gets used to films that were produced before the adoption of the do's and don'ts, what you can do and what you cannot do or portray on film. In essence, think of it as the adoption of the MPAA rating systems, right? Think of it as like the Wild West of cinema production. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but in essence, it's essentially looking at a period of time where things got a little bit more charged in terms of the coverage of sex, of violence, et cetera, et cetera, right? In the early 30s, a little bit after this film was released, that changes. Now, there's a little bit more of a cynical take that I would use in terms of so big being listed somewhere as a pre-code is that it's also an attempt by more contemporary marketing people to get you to be interested in older films, right? So in the case of Barbara Stanwyck's career, probably the most famous pre-code film and one that holds up very, very well. And one that really makes your eyebrows go up and go, really? Is a film called Babyface, which she did very closely to this one a little bit later. In this particular case though, it's interesting to me that they're labeling this a pre-code. Yes, in terms of dates, it makes sense that it's a pre-code, but for the most part, this is a pretty tame film and a pretty darn tame adaptation of the book. So pre-code I would say, and I guess we're all ladies here. I'll go ahead and say it. I think what's interesting is when you look at the history of pre-code, it's actually far more than a film being sexy. It's actually that the first generation of film historians that looked at this issue were largely men, and they were largely looking at the films that were a little bit more pervy. Because remember, this is not the government (laughs) censoring. This is studios self-censoring. And they were very shrewd. They knew, especially if you look at the date here, 1932, they had to be careful because this is the height of the depression. And Hollywood product was losing money. And so they did not want to offend any of those Catholic mothers. And they were largely Catholic mothers who were up in arms over the movie.
0: Can I just say, though, I'm pretty glad they kept this one tame because I don't think I could have stomached racy scenes between Selena and Purvis
2: in this movie, which we will oh, get to. Absolutely. I
0: absolutely. Mean, yeah. So we'll get to Purvis in a minute. But first of all, what do we think of Barbara Stanwyck as Selena? I know, Caroline, I think you have strong opinions, maybe. I have such strong opinions. That's why you should start.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: I liked her. I thought she kept my interest. Your eyes are drawn to her. She's beautiful. They have to age her over time, which is a little weird. But I thought she did a good job relative to the other actors. In oh, her- yeah,
1: definitely. I thought she was much better. I thought she was a star and you know, she had that glowing look that they have where they look like they're in a different movie, but it was like she was acting in a different movie and there was a big juxtaposition there for me. Anyway, I want to hear what Carolyn has to say though.
2: Well, you know, it's funny. I'm going to tell one of my colleagues here in Austin about this podcast because he and I fight all the time over Barbara Stanwyck. This is the curator of the Austin Film Society and he loves Barbara Stanwyck and I just roll my eyes and go, "Ugh, uh, yay. So here's what I would say. I thought she was interesting in this role, but even the audio that you just used, I couldn't get over her voice. Now, remember, this isn't early talking. So one of the reasons the film looks the way it does is that you're in the first couple years of sound. So even original reviews of this film are going to talk about it being a talking picture, a talking picture, and you have to hear her Brooklyn sounding voice. So she's like, look, Cabbages, beautiful. And I was like,
1: take it down a notch,
2: Brooklyn born. <laughs> she does have a very deep voice. Yeah,
1: she's not who I pictured at all as Selena when I was reading the book. Yeah.
0: But like we said, she's head and shoulders above some of the rest of this cast. And so <laughs> yeah, getting back into the book, in time, Selena sheds her sophisticated city ways. She's coming from Chicago, and she now is permanently entrenched in the toil and struggle of life as a farmer's wife after marrying a struggling bachelor named Purvis DeJong, which I thought it was de Jong until I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. And apparently it's DeJong. What did we think of Purvis and Selena's choice of marrying him? Caroline's laughing. I mean, she can't even get to the microphone right yeah, now. She's just she laughing. can't even. Okay. De-
1: yeah.
2: Kim, you are a more
1: elegant woman. I am mired in what on earth was going on in the film. So you you have to take the lead. <laughs> in the film, there's no attraction. I mean, no, no, no. It doesn't make any sense. Meanwhile, in the book, there is this great sexual tension between the two of them. And he's so handsome that she can't even, you know, realize the fact that intellectually they're completely incompatible. But in the film, there's no way she wouldn't know they're incompatible and there is no sexual tension and he isn't you know, he's a doofus. Yeah, it's messed up. He is definitely
2: an intriguing character in the book, even though, as you say, they're not intellectual. They don't meet intellectually. She's only, what, 19, I think, when she meets him and had lived such a kind of cloistered existence. And so you kind of appreciate it. But then the movie, I literally was like, him? Like, what? That guy? And he's about as interesting as a toad. Actually, a toad would be more interesting, a rock that's just sitting there. And it was sad. It was sad. The good news is he's
1: not around
2: very long.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that is good news. Yes, move
0: him along fast.
1: Yes. So after getting married, Selena DeYoung, our heroine, has a baby named Dirk. But here's where the book's title comes in. His nickname becomes so big because his mother always asks, how big is baby?
0: And we actually have a little film audio of this moment. They are in the Cabbage Patch. He's a Cabbage Patch kid. Literally. How big is my baby? How big is my man? So big.
2: It's like she's assaulting him. How big are you? How big are you? are like, relax, sister. He is a precious child. And she's like, how big? <laughs> it
1: is. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So back to Selena's young artist friend that Amy had been mentioning, Rolf. By this point in time, he has gone off to see what the great wide world has to offer. And her husband, Purvis, is kind of a failure as a farmer and sort of as a husband too. Selena has all sorts of ideas and suggestions for how they might make improvements, but he really has no interest in humoring her in that.
0: And then due to unforeseen circumstances, she finds herself all alone having to raise her little boy and eke out a living on this poor excuse for a farm and it's really terrifying for her especially the first time she has to go drive her produce into Chicago on her own to try to sell it it's scary but before long we discover that Selena is a total entrepreneur when it comes to figuring out how to run this farm you know, drain the fields so the harvest will improve, grow new types of crops. She's got all these ideas and she's got some serious hustle.
1: Yeah, she's completely into it. It actually reminded me a little bit of the Homemaker episode that we did last year. And I love the scene where she's driving her first crops to Haymarket Street by herself and she takes special care to make her vegetables stand out.
0: Uh, Yeah, she's positioning herself to have the pricey Whole Foods version of produce,
2: I think. Oh, it is totally the Whole Foods. She was like, I'm going to make this beautiful. And they're like, rubbish. Who cares? But I do blame both of you for when I was at the grocery store this weekend, and I started strolling amongst the asparagus. And I was like, look at that asparagus in beautiful bunches. (laughs)
1: Look at how it's bundled. So Ferber writes, They had picked and bunched only the best of the late crop, the firmest, reddest radishes, the roundest, juiciest beets, the carrots that tapered a good seven inches from base to tip, kraut cabbages of the drumhead variety that were flawless green balls, firm, juicy spears of cucumber, cauliflower of her own planting. Purvis had opposed it. It looked like a bride's bouquet. Selena stepped back now and regarded this riot of crimson and green of white and gold and purple. Aren't they beautiful? Dirk, aren't they beautiful?
0: And Dirk's like, what you talking about, woman? Just like the Poole family at the beginning of the book, Dirk can't see his mother's vision. He doesn't understand how there's any beauty in a wagon full of produce. And this is what sets up the conflict that continues in the rest of the book as Dirk grows up. So Caroline, what are your thoughts on what Ferber's trying to impart here with Selena's dedication to her life on the farm?
2: Well, you know, probably what you all have seen is important there, right? Which is even in this kind of dull environment, she still tries to find beauty. And I think Ferber's very romantic about this. Like it's setting up this kind of romantic notion about how you can find beauty in, you know, vegetables. And I think it's interesting it's cabbage, of all things, because it's very evocative of the immigrant experience, right? What is the vegetable that the poorest people eat? That's cabbage. She's doubling down on this. She was a laughingstock for saying this earlier in the book. And then with Dirk, she's trying to impart this. She's trying to say, you're not just your father's son. You're my son as well, and you need to see the beauty. And he's
1: not having it. She was glorifying the people in this country that aren't often celebrated. So laborers, farmers, people who are eking out a living. I can maybe see them reading this novel if they had time. <laughs> I don't think they would.
0: I think they probably were because of how many copies it sold. I mean, it was like a huge bestseller. So were they more like the Pool family and rolling their eyes at the cabbages is beautiful or were they feeling validated?
2: That's a great question. My family's originally from Kansas, so those flat fields feel very familiar to me. And you know, I'm not sure this book would have appealed. I think they would have rolled their eyes at a lot of that. But who knows? Who knows? The majority of people in the United States at this point in time were rural. It's so different from what we experience now. You have a huge, again, kind of nostalgia here where they're saying the agrarian past, because in the 20th century is when we become, as a nation, predominantly urban.
0: Along the same lines here, in researching Edna Ferber, I kept coming across the term middle-brow author, which really annoyed me a little bit. It was sort of like the fact that her book was popular with everyday folks made it somehow lesser. Apparently, some of her later writing was definitely less literary and more mainstream. But Caroline, what do you think the film industry saw in her works beyond just the fact that she sold a lot of books which would have appealed to them?
2: for so big, there's a large kind of backstory to Warner Brothers' history at this moment, but they would have said, okay, we're in the height of the depression. This is really bankable. We're going to do this and we're going to put some of the key talent into this. Uh, Whether or not it was as successful as they hoped, it was certainly not as successful as Cimarron, but certainly over time when they were remaking this proved to be a good investment.
0: We should mention also that Cimarron, that won an Academy Award, right? Best
2: picture? Yes. And in fact, it was one of the most successful films from this
1: period of time. You're making me want to watch Cimarron. I have not yeah, seen it. Yeah, or read it. Mm-hmm. So uh, back to the novel, Selena de Jong goes from being this beautiful young woman to a woman who has physically diminished. She's old before her years, weathered, beaten down. And then getting back to the movie, we see that transformation take hold of Barbara Stanwyck, sort of anyway. <laughs>
2: I actually liked her more at the latter part of the film when she was somehow a little bit softer. And part of that was just makeup. She was somehow elegantly more beautiful to me at the latter part of the film. But I think that was pretty effective. I was like, let's see who did makeup and costumes. Like I'd do a slow clap for them. I'm not sure I'd do so much for the uh, screenplay and or casting department, but, you know, makeup, bang on.
0: Watching this movie made you understand why it's important for filmmakers to take some license independent of the book. Um, But Caroline, what did you think this film version did well? And where did you think it fell completely flat other than the casting? Because you mentioned Edna Ferber's books are so sprawling. And I felt like if we were to see this movie made today, we would get the sprawling. Right. We would get the wide shots of the fields. We would get the panoramic of the farm and you're not really getting this. A lot of it felt like it was on a soundstage. There were some outside moments, but it didn't have the epic cinematography that I wanted.
2: No. And I would say here, this is where the film nerd comes in. So this was the second adaptation of this book, which is really interesting. In the silent era, and this film does not exist, right? It sadly is completely lost at this point in time. They would have had the capacity to shoot those exteriors because this is a book that takes place basically outside. And this particular adaptation feels claustrophobic in a way because they had to be inside because of sound technology. I started to go back and count how many exterior scenes and there's basically none because of the sound technology. Just like in the podcast, you have to be really close to your microphone. And there was no way they would have been able to do it, particularly with the way and the technology employed by Warner Brothers. By the time you get to the third adaptation in the 50s, it's a much more expansive, as you say, the ability to tell that story outside. And I think that definitely contributes to the challenges that this adaptation faced.
1: So as we said, when So Big, also known as Dirk de Jong, grows up, There's a real philosophical disconnect between the way he lives his life and the way his mother lives hers. He makes a success of himself in a white-collar stockbroking job, even though he has zero passion about it. Clearly, our girl Edna Ferber has zero respect for this. She
0: writes, he sat looking down at his hands, his fine, strong, unscarred hands. Suddenly and unreasonably, he thought of another pair of hands, his mother's, with the knuckles enlarged, the skin broken, Expressive, her life written on them. Scars, she had them.
1: Yeah, I loved the way the Dirk character was, you know, even though he was making some bad choices, it's like he really was aware of his bad choices and the conflict that he had and, you know, his feelings about his mom. And he did really respect her. But his soft hands prove problematic when he falls for a beautiful young artist named Dallas O'Mara. She has opinions of her own about Dirk's choices in life.
0: Right. She is not turned on by men
1: with soft hands. No. No, she's not. Um, and she's played by Miss Betty Davis, who pops up in the last third of the 1932 movie. Do we have a clip of Betty Davis, Amy?
0: I do. Let me play it for us. Must a man be an artist to understand? Good Lord, no. I'll probably marry some horny-handed son of toil. And if I do, the horny hands will win me. I like them with their scars on them. Something about a man who was fought for it. Look in his eye. Feel of his hands. You have a no mark on you, Dick. Not a mark. You gave up being an architect because it was an uphill, disheartening job at the time. I don't say you should have kept on. For all, I know you were a terrible architect. But if you had kept on, if you loved enough to keep on fighting and struggling, that fight would show in your face today. Your eyes and
2: your whole being. Name
0: of heaven, Dallas. Yes, I'm not criticizing you, but, but you're all smooth and, and I like them
1: bumpy. Okay, you guys can disagree with me, but to me, that performance and her coming in like that and her cool, edgy city vibe and independent woman, and she looked incredible. I was like, Yeah, give me a movie about Dallas O'Mara. That's the movie I want to see. That's the passion I want to see right there. What do you guys think? That was when the movie started for me at the end.
2: I'm just saying, I was ready to not only watch that movie, but I wanted to hang out with her. This is why Betty Davis was a star because she is cute as a button.
1: Yes, it changed my perception. I want to go back and watch Betty Davis movies now in a way that I never did before. I have a whole new appreciation for her. She was just the best. That's
0: why she's the star she
1: is.
2: She's a star. Yeah. She wrote about this film and how honored she was and excited she was to be in a standway vehicle. And she also said for all of the roles in her entire career, this was the one that was most like her as a person. You almost get a sense of that. She's so kind of, I don't know, has such an authority about her. It doesn't feel like a performance. And I thought it was really interesting looking at that quote which was she of all of the roles I've played is the closest to me as a person. And I thought, you kind of you kind of get that.
0: And when she tells Dirk what her worth is, when he said, I'm not paying you fifteen hundred dollars for a painting, and she's like, Well, that's what I'm worth. Yes. Uh, and that was such a great moment.
1: Oh, it's so feminist right there. Oh, that character. It popped off the
2: page for me in Ferber's book because I thought, my gosh, this book was written a hundred years ago, and yet this argument is still fresh and it's still almost shocking that she was so comfortable in saying, that's what I'm worth. I just thought, this is wild. There's another aspect to maybe why Ferber was useful for the film industry. And it is that strong feminist voice. I think there's something about Ferber's work that is useful for an industry that is going to be catering to a lot of women.
1: Yeah. And then thematically with the book, Selena is sort of a certain type of person, and Dallas is like the new version of that person. She's how you can go into the world with what Selena brings in a way where you can own it and be a success at it and live your life.
0: The modern successor yes, to Selena. Yeah. Yes. I like that. So without giving away the ending of this book, I'm wondering what you guys
2: actually thought of the way it ended. It's kind of abrupt. Kind of. <laughs> I literally, I was reading it on a on a Kindle and I kept kind of swiping because I was like, what? what? I did
1: that too. I did that too. I was like, wait, what? Huh? So I'm, yeah. What'd you think, Kim? Oh, uh, you know, it's so funny. I'm like thinking back. <laughs> I mean, I guess it kind of sews it up.
0: I mean, in the case of the movie, we needed it to be over by then. Yeah. <laughs> you
1: know? It doesn't lessen the book for me at all, the ending. I'll just no. put it that way. Like, no. yeah, it's not like one of those endings, I think, where you're like, oh my God, it's more like, okay, the book finished, but the book is just wonderful throughout. And if we're
0: talking about going back to the idea of like missing in the movie, the sort of sweeping depiction of farm life, for me, there's actually a really different movie that I was thinking of the whole time I was reading So Big. It's a documentary by David Sutherland that came out in 1998 called The Farmer's Wife. It aired on PBS, on Frontline, and I remember that movie really got under my skin. I think it's a three-part movie, so like six hours. It was amazing. It follows this woman named Juanita Bushcutter. I always remember her name. She lives with her farmer husband and their daughters in rural Nebraska. Her story is so anguishing as the farmer's wife and all the struggles, the financial struggles she has, all the um, backbreaking labor that she has to do on the farm. And at the same time, it's so beautiful. You see her on the farm and the sun's rising up, you know, behind her. So I kept thinking of her when I was reading about Selena de Jong, not Barbara Stanwyck. And you can find that documentary on Amazon Prime. And I think it, it really would be a good companion movie also to reading so big.
2: You know, it's funny, I think, in some ways, is that documentary, and I don't know, I haven't seen it, is it also equally romanticizing the beauty there? Because on one hand, I think that the farming and this kind of this notion of American settlers, right? even Cimarron and Giant, these are all similar stories that she's telling, which is these sweeping, very European-focused stories about the settling of the West. And I think there is such a romanticization of that in her work that doesn't hold up today when we're poking holes in that narrative a little bit. I do think it would be interesting to see if that documentary shares a little bit of that romanticizing of it. In some ways, it goes back to the ending for me. What I liked about the ending of the book was that it seemed to go so well with the difficulties of being a farmer. It was just like, there's an abruptness of life, you know, abruptness of life and death. And, you know, I worked with a a guy in Los Angeles um, who has passed away sadly now, but he worked in the film laboratories, worked with all the major studios, and he worked so hard. And I said to him, how do you do it? You work so hard. He said, oh, please, I grew up on a farm. He said, That's the people that work hard. You have to get up and milk the cow. You have to get up and do it. Because if you don't, it'll be a disaster. And I thought that was really interesting in terms of a modern
1: perspective on that, for sure. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, this is going to digress a little bit to earlier in the book, but I actually was surprised at the direction the book took when she ended up inheriting the farm, basically, and trying to turn it over that actual joy that she took in the hard work, she actually really chose to keep that life. There's a choice all throughout the middle of the book where she could have chosen differently. She had friends and that part of the story isn't in the movie so much, but um, she had other opportunities later and she really became in love with that life of the farm. That's true. I also think like in a Thomas Hardy movie or something like that, the choices that she made would have ended disastrously. But, you know, what we talked about with her, you know, sort of making this choice of marrying the wrong guy, obviously, it doesn't end up killing her. You know, I mean, she sort of makes a triumph of a failed choice in marriage and in a lot of books that we've read and movies that we've seen, you know, that doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, she has that nobility at the end, which we talked about when we were discussing The Velvet. Mm-hmm. You know? I know Kim and I both were commenting to each other when we read this that it was really a pleasurable experience to read the book, and I'm really glad that we selected it. I think I might not have been intrigued enough to pick it up just based on the plot summary, which goes back to what Ferber told her publisher, you know, this probably won't sell. But reading, it was really enjoyable. And I think I would be interested to read more of her work after this.
2: I was just dumbfounded having seen so many adaptations of her work, but I mean, feeling kind of guilty that I hadn't read. I mean, here's this kind of a feminist icon from this era. And here I just kind of blithely looked over this. I was sort of thinking of this is like my work. I need to do my work. And then I was like, this isn't work. I'm enjoying this book. Everybody in my house, be quiet. I'm focusing on this really enjoyable book right now. Um, And I think in some ways, maybe that's why the film, this adaptation from the 30s struck me so hard because I thought, how
1: did they suck the joy out of this book? This book won a Pulitzer Prize. It was adapted three times as Caroline was saying. We found it incredible. We all three loved reading it, yet none of us had read it before. I don't know if Amy and I even had heard of it. It goes back to the whole question of this podcast. It's like, Why did we not know about this book? Why hadn't we read it? It just got lost in time. It's really interesting. Um, And we would tell everyone out there to read this book. It's fabulous. It deserved a Pulitzer as far as I'm concerned. And again, this notion of what's lost.
2: I think if my grandmother were here, she'd be like, oh yeah, of course I've read all of those. Is it generational that gets lost in this way? And one person's lost is another person's passion, right? I was thinking about how struck I was. With the adaptation of Ferber. And I hadn't put all this together, but you know, the star of the 1920s version of So Big would be the person that I would recommend in terms of a quote, lost movie star. The star of that is, I think, one of the most gifted actresses or Hollywood stars from the silent era, Colleen Moore. And that it is so. Tragic to me that not only is this film lost, but it was in particular, it was Colleen Moore in this title role who would have brought, I think exactly what you were saying, Kim, about what you're in your head would have pictured as this particular performance, right? She would have had a very different look. It would have had a very different sort of manner. And it was interesting because I thought, well, maybe the listeners wouldn't know who Colleen Moore is, that they're, this is a lost person to them, but I've been following her career for 30 years. It's such an interesting kind of question of loss or misremembered or rediscovered and the politics of kind of
1: rediscovery, what have you. Oh, good point. Yeah. Who does it belong to?
0: It was so nice meeting a blast from Kim's past, Caroline. And we are so glad you could take time out of your schedule to read some Edna Ferber with us.
1: Yes. We are so happy to have had you. This was really, really fun. Yeah, no, thank you.
2: I I am so honored to be included. And I just want to say thank you and agree with everything that we've said that if anybody listening has not read this book or seen an adaptation, it was such a pleasure and great opportunity to have this excuse. So thank you both.
0: Kim, I feel like I need to go hit up a farmer's market or something after this
1: episode. Yeah, or throw together a big salad with cabbages in it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So anyway, that's all for today's episode. We hope you're loving the authors and book suggestions we've been offering up each week. If you do, head on over to wherever you listen to this podcast and click that five-star review.
1: Yes, it's a huge help. And let us know what you think by sending us an email or connecting with us on Instagram. And don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter for more fun stuff.
0: We'll be back next week. Bye, everybody.